just records. You can move it wherever you Good morning. It is good to be with you today. Been looking forward to this for, for a long time. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings 19. I pulled up in the parking lot and realized that I left my jacket in the house over here, so I don't usually preach in a shirt and tie, but I guess we'll try it this morning. 1 Kings chapter 19. There was a businessman who was on a trip St. Louis. He was staying over the weekend, began his meetings on Monday. He didn't usually go to church services, but on this Sunday he didn't have anything to do, so he decided he would attend a service. And so he put on his business suit, went down to the hotel lobby. Wasn't anybody there at the time, so he walked out on the street, and there was a, a police officer, and he walked up to him and said, Sir, I'm from out of town, and I'm wanting to attend church. Could you point me in the right direction? And the officer thought for a minute. He said, well, I'll tell you what. If you'll walk down uh, two blocks, over a block, and down three blocks, there's a church up on the hill. I think you might enjoy attending. And the man went through that in his mind, and he said, uh, isn't there a church any closer than that? And he said, well, yeah, there are, there are two or three closer than that. But that one's on the other side of my beat. And I get over there about the time they let out, they let out of services. And he said, I believe those are the happiest people in St. Louis. And I thought that would be the kind of church that you would want to attend. I wonder, as we let out today, or perhaps more appropriately, as we go about our activities this week, and people know where we attend, where we worship and, and attend services, at school, at work, in the community, what, they, what impression they have of the Stanford Church of Christ or Main Street Church of Christ, based on the people they know who attend here? Would they be drawn here by our joy in serving Christ? Or might they be repelled? Or might they be neutral about religion based just on the person or the, or the family that they know that is a member of this congregation? Or the congregation where I attend? 1 Kings 19 is a great Old Testament chapter about attitude. And we find in this chapter God's prophet Elijah who's going through a difficult time. You know, you don't fly to heaven in a straight line. As an old preacher said, it's, it's peaks and valleys. You know, we, we're not always up. We certainly aren't always down. But there are times when we are on cloud nine and we're up. And there are times when we're down in the valley. And we would not be human if that were not the case. That we, we're not robots. We don't go through life without emotions and difficulties and challenges and joys. So as we go through life, certainly we want our attitude to be on the rise. And we want our overall tenor of life to be positive. Because Christ has made a difference in our lives. And that is a magnet to draw others in to see what it is that we have that they're missing. And certainly Christ makes a difference in our lives. And Elijah is a good example of, of how to pull out of a difficult time. Because here we find in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah has just defeated the 450 prophets of Baal in the previous chapter. And now Jezebel, who's the queen, the power behind the throne, 
has put a price on his head. She said, by this time tomorrow, the same thing is going to happen to you. Because those were her preachers. She fed them at her table. She, you could hear her God and her name, Jezebel. And they were the prophets of Baal. So she was angry with Elijah. And he knew that she meant business because she had already killed all the prophets of God that she could find. And he had been in hiding for three years and had come out recently. And now she's going to try to do unto him what she's done to all the other prophets of God that she could find. And she wants to kill him. So he flees from where he is at Mount Carmel. He goes inland, away from the ocean. And his servants traveling with him. We pick up the story then. In verse 3, he went for his life and came to Beersheba. That's about 100 miles from where he was. So he has been on a dead run, at least I picture it that way, away from where he was so that she will not know where to find him, which belongeth to Judah, and he left his servant there. I guess the servant was worn out. There's no price on his head, so he... He stays in the city, but Elijah's not comfortable. She may find me here. Somebody's going to turn me in. So he goes out in the wilderness, away from everybody in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. A juniper tree. That Your, your version might have broom tree because this is a... a a short tree with stiff branches that sometimes would cut and trim and they could use it to sweep with. But for Elijah, it represented the deepest, darkest time in his life. Sitting under the juniper tree and he's so discouraged that he just wants to die. In fact, he says that to the Lord. And came and sat on the juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough, O Lord, to take away my life where I'm not better than my father's. My life's not worth anything. Uh, don't, don't raise your hand or nod your head or blink your eyes or anything to this question. But have you ever been under the juniper tree? Have you ever been to the point in your life where it just didn't seem like it was worth living anymore? I suppose most of us might say, I've been there. At least some of us would. And, and that's not that unusual. You think about the servants of God in the Scriptures. Great men of God like Moses, like Job, who came to the point, like John the Baptist, Matthew 14, who came to the point where they were discouraged. They were down and out. They did not think life was worth living anymore. But the good thing about all of them and about Elijah is that they pulled out of it. And they continued to serve God faithfully for, uh, for as long as they lived after that. Now what we find in this chapter is God's dealing with a discouraged servant. I can tell you this. I just met most of you for the first time and haven't even met all of you yet. But I can tell, tell you this about you. And you know this about me. That this lesson either is applicable to your circumstances right now or at some point in the past or at some point in the future. Amen. Because all of us are going to deal with discouragement. Now how do I deal with it? It's one tool the devil has to use against me. And if I don't handle it correctly, then I can allow him to trip me up with discouragement. But if I handle it correctly, I can grow through it and become out of it better than I went into it. And that's what God uses it for. 
for us to grow spiritually, to learn more patience, to enjoy life more because we have something to contrast it with, and to be able to serve and help others who are going through difficult times. Those are three of the blessings that come out of discouragement. So let's go into this and see the two parts to the lesson. If time allows us to, we will look at first... And what got Elijah here? Why is he discouraged? And even though he lived 750 years B.C., so 2,700, 2,800 years ago, it is remarkably up to date. The same challenges that he faced are challenges that people face today. And then in the second part, we'll see how God brought him out of it. So let's look first at the causes and then we'll look at the solutions. So let's begin here. What, what got Elijah to the point, if you just had never read about Elijah before, didn't know anything about him, and then you've come on this chapter where he's sitting under the juniper tree, how could a servant of God be so discouraged that he would rather die than live? Oh, that's an unusual circumstance. How did he get there? Well, let's observe first that, it, that these are the contributing factors to it. Number one, he isolated himself. Here Elijah was with the 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal that God talks about later in this chapter. He had, when he defeated the 450 prophets of Baal, the crowd, the huge crowd that had gathered for the contest said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They, there was a great crowd of believers in the true God that he left behind. And then he had a servant with him who was faithful to God, but he left him behind. And now he's out in the wilderness all by himself. And that's a recipe for discouragement. To have no one to hold us up, to encourage us, to help us, to talk to when we're down. You think about what people uh, often do when, when they get discouraged. They go home. It's time for church services. Uh, I don't know. I don't really feel like going tonight. Feel like dealing with people and talking, and you know, I'm not going to get anything out of it anyway. I think I'll just stay home tonight. I'll just turn in early. I don't, I don't really feel all that great anyway. And so they put this on a Wednesday night. Then Sunday rolls around, and oh, oh, it's so hard right now. But they make themselves go, and they come in about the time because the first prayer is ended, and they sneak out about the time. The, first, the last prayer begins, and, and then they don't make it back Sunday night, and, and, and a friend calls and says, well, what's going on? You know? Well, let's get together. I, we need to talk. And uh, the person says, I don't know. I've I got a lot of things going on today. I don't, I don't I, Maybe another time. What are they doing? The very thing that they really need that we really need is to be with God's people. Amen. They can encourage us. They will help us. They, they will be able to provide solutions to the doubts that we're facing if we'll talk to them about it. But, but the natural inclination may be to isolate ourselves. And that's a time of discouragement. So no going into this period of discouragement whenever you find yourself in it. Don't, I need to make a commitment to myself. I'm not going to isolate myself from God's people. We, we used, when I was growing up, we heated our, our house with a wood-burning stove in the basement and a fireplace up, upstairs. We hardly used any electricity 
in the wintertime, and it would keep a good-sized house uh, fairly warm. But, so I knew a lot about fires, because my job is the oldest son to build the fire and keep it going. You know what? One thing I learned about, about fires, when you have a big back stick in there and it grow, glows orange with heat and radiates heat, you could take one of those coals with the, the tongs and lay it on the hearth, and this orange is just pulsating with energy. You walk off and come back in a little while. And what's happened to that coal? Oh, it's black now. You can pick it up with your hand if you don't mind getting hand dirty. Because it's not going to burn you. You put that same coal back in the fire and a few minutes you come back and what's happened to it? It's glowing hot again. That's a Christian. You put the Christian in the church with other people whose faith is strong and they will benefit from it. Their faith will grow. They will be pulsating with spiritual energy. You take them away from it. You put them out in the world. They'll grow cold. Then we need each other. So the first thing, mistake that Elijah made was he isolated himself from God's people. What other contributing factors were they? Well, let's consider number two. This happened after an emotional victory. I mean, Elijah, can you imagine? One prophet of God versus 450 prophets of Baal. One versus four. That's not very good odds. But it's good odds if God is on the side of the one. And that's what happened here. And he defeated them. But can you imagine being in front of that many people against that many people? I mean, most of us would be scared to death to be in a crowd of thousands, in front of a, cloud, a crowd of thousands of people watching and listening to us and taking on these 450 people with the stakes so high. I mean, you're taking on the queen when you take on... So it's an emotional high when God answers by fire and burns up the sacrifice and the altar and dries up the water. Well, what a great victory that was. That was an emotional high. But what follows an emotional high in a human being? An emotional love. You know, it evens out. Now let's put ourselves into the picture here. You know, things that happen outside of the building affect what goes on inside of the building in our lives. You think about, I don't know what you may do for a living, but you may be in education, let's say. But maybe you've been tasked at your school with making sure that the SACS accreditation process goes smoothly and you receive a renewal for a year or five years. And so you spend several months working with the other teachers and administrators and filling out all the paperwork and the day comes, the inspector comes in and they interview and they sit in the classes and all that they do and they, they go away and they say, we'll let you know next week and the report comes back. Yes, we passed. Oh, well, what, a, what joy. That's an emotional high. Pause that one. Let's say you're, you're in business, you're in construction. And your comp company's gone through a difficult time, and, and you've been asked to put the pencil of the paper on the bid that will make or break the company. It's a big bid. You're going to, let's say it's road construction, you're going to do several miles, and you're going to have all the, the road grading and all the supplies and the employee hours, and everything has to go into it. And so you. And you're up against some other companies and you know the only one's going to win the bid. And so you, you work at it, you, you beat up the vendors and you come back and finally you say, well, this is our bid. And you, you submit it. And then the, the day comes when they select it. We got it. 
The company is saying, we've got two years of work and it's going to be good pay. Emotional high. What happens next? You go home from the accreditation, you go home from the business, from your work, and you say, oh, boy, let me do one more. Your family has a a daughter who's getting married, and so you've been working for months to get everything just right. You know, pick out the colors, the flowers, and who's going to do this, and where we're going to do it, and all this, and it's been your focus for, let's say, for a year. And then they they drive off, and uh, you sweep up, and you go home. Emotional down. If we're not careful, that period in our lives when we've been high and now we're low will affect us Sunday morning. We will be at, uh, at loose ends. Maybe we haven't taken care of our... Uh, well, let's move on and I'll tie a third one to it. Here you have Elijah whose physical body is affected by his emotional Concerns. Well, we know that because, and I'll jump ahead just a little. What does God do for Elijah first when he sends the angel? He says, uh, Here, eat, drink, get some rest. See, his physical body was worn out. I mean, he had, he had run 100 miles and then got a day's journey out in the wilderness. And on top of that, he had built the altar and, and all that he had done prior to that. So he's physically exhausted. <clears throat> So I need to ask myself when I go into, uh, when I find myself in a period of discouragement, is is there a a logical reason for this? Is this just a reaction to an emotional high? And if so, it's going to equal out. I don't need to overreact in the valley because soon my emotions will be rising again. Is it because I I fail to take care of my physical body? You know, when we're running so busy, we may just... Go through and eat, drive through, and not take time to exercise, and be too stressed to sleep very well, and the body just worn out over time. It may be that we say, you know, there's a physical reason for my spiritual condition. Sometimes the best thing, the most spiritual thing that a Christian can do is go home and take a nap. <laughs> you know? Because uh, if we pushed ourselves too hard, We've got to take care of this body. This body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 17, 6, 19, and 20. So we need to take care of our bodies. What does that involve? Well, it, it involves relief of stress because that, that's a negative. It involves, it involves what we eat. It involves how much we sleep. It involves our exercise. Those things all contribute to good physical health, which leads to good mental health, which contributes to our spiritual health. Now let's talk about one more. Well, is this class over at a quarter after? Okay. Well, let's talk about um, maybe two more on the causes, then we'll talk about the. Let's drop down in this and see another one. He focused on himself rather than on the Lord. You see that in verse 4. Notice the personal pronouns. O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my Father. See those personal pronouns? Drop down again to verse 10. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And the last part of the verse says, I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life 
to take it away? Where is Elijah looking? He's looking at his own strength. He's thinking about himself. You know, sometimes when we get discouraged, we have this pity party for ourselves. You know, we, we, our, our focus draws inward and we only think about our situation, my problems. And I had a teacher years ago in preacher school. He said, you know, when you find yourself on a blue Monday, he said, close up your office, get in your car and go visit the widows in the church. And he said, this is what will happen. And I have done this. I don't tell them that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's part, part of the work of Christians to visit anyway. But sometimes I'll go because, not because they need it so much as I need it. So I'll go and I'll sit down in their living room. And I'll notice temperatures in here. Is, you know, if it's wintertime, it's a little chilly in here because they have a thermostat uh, up where they, you know, they're not real comfortable, but it saves money. I notice on the kitchen counter, there's all those medicine bottles. And I know that some months they have to decide whether they're going to buy groceries or pay for the medicine. I'll see the pictures on the wall and ask about. And sometimes they'll say, well, haven't seen my son in three years. You know, he lives away and they don't get back here much. But you know the, the, the faith and the spiritual attitude of the widows will rise above those circumstances. And you're sitting there visiting them, wanting to encourage them. And when you walk out the door, you're encouraged. They have visited you in their house. They've encouraged you because their faith is strong. They have difficulties. And then when I'll get back in my car and go back to, to make the next thing, I'm thinking, I don't have to deal with those problems. My life's pretty good. And after you make about three or four of those visits, the, the attitude is turned around. It's like, I'll take my life. You know? So here you see that Elijah is focused on himself. And somebody said if you uh, help another person dig, a hole, dig out of their troubles, you'll find a hole to put your troubles in. That's pretty good. Let's talk about some of the solutions that God made. Uh, number one, he took care of the physical man. Let's read about that. I touched on that earlier, but let's read it now in verse 5. And he lay and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Now this angel obviously is from God. And Elijah just says, My life's not worth living. But God was not disinterested. God didn't say, well, I'll get, I'll get to Elijah later. i got other things to do today. He immediately dispatched an angel to Elijah because God was concerned about Elijah. Now, Elijah was a great prophet, but God is no less concerned about your life and my life than He was about Elijah's. There's one thing about um, omnibenevolence or all love. Have you ever thought about the fact that God loves every person as much as He loves any person? Because that's what omnibenevolence is. He cannot love you less than He loves somebody else. He loves everybody all the way to the top. Now what does that mean? 
I can sell myself short. I can say I'm a nobody. God doesn't care. Or, or what am I in the kingdom of God with all these great, you know, fill in the blank elders, evangelists, uh, faithful pioneer preachers. The truth is, we all have a role to play in the kingdom of God. Nobody else can do for do in your family what you do for your family. No one else can do in your workplace or your school or your community what you can do there because we can't be everywhere. Somebody might be more talented than me, but he can't be two places at the same time. He can't be in two families. So I have a role for, to play for God in, every, in my life, in my situation. And God is just as concerned for me to be successful in what I have to do as He is for anybody else to be successful in whatever they have to do. So, Elijah was down and out, but God was aware of his problem. Sent the angel. Now let's read what the angel said. The angel did not come with a rebuke. You know, he didn't come and say, Elijah, would you look at yourself? I tell you, you're supposed to be a great prophet. You're out here like a baby under a juniper tree and you're wanting to die. Elijah, snap out of it. You know, that's the wrong approach to someone who's discouraged. Snap out of it. You know, berate them. What did God do? God sent the angel and said, Arise and eat. Here, let's get to the let, let's deal with the simple things first. Let's deal with the situation as it is. Let's get you in a condition to be able to appreciate other things. You're worn out. You're hungry. So arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals. I guess that's where we get angel food cake from, you reckon? <laughs> and a cruise of water. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord said to him, came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat for the journey, because the journey is too great for thee. So what's he dealing with? Physical man. He's saying you need to, you need to eat, you need to drink, you need to rest. We've got, we got to get your physical man back uh, to, the, to a right place. So that's the first thing that we ask ourselves. We're discouraged. Is there a physical reason for it? If there is, deal with that. Fix it. Now the next thing, he arose and did eat and went in the strength of that meat, verse 8, uh, 40 days and 40 nights in the horror of the Mount of God. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. Now this is Elijah still out in the wilderness in the cave. And the word of the Lord came to him. Now God can deal with the spiritual problem because the physical man is well. God said to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Number two is, He asked him to examine himself. What doest thou here, Elijah? He's going to ask that question again in verse 13. What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah, look in the mirror. I, I have observed through the years that it is easier to give somebody else advice than to give it to yourself. So do this. Say, if, if a friend came to me with my circumstances and asked me, what should I do? What would I tell them? That's a pretty simple way to look at a situation, but it's very effective. Because we know how to fix somebody else's problems. <laughs> you know, it's our problems we have trouble, trouble fixing. The solution is often not that difficult. 
It's just that we need to think through it and then implement or execute it. So he, he's asking Elijah. He didn't come and say, Elijah, you need to do this. And he's going to give him some assignments in a minute. But first he says, Eli- what doest thou here, Elijah? Look at yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Self-examination. We do that every Sunday in the Lord's Supper. But we, and we do that in every sermon to some extent. And every time we read the Bible, we're examining ourselves because we're comparing ourselves to what the book says. So self-examination. So we look at ourselves and say, I'm discouraged. I'm down and out. I'm, why, why is this? So look at, we're intelligent beings. We are rational beings. We have the ability to reason. So use that. And say, well, what got me here and how can I get out of it? If I were advising someone else, what would I tell them to do? And then take that advice myself. So what doest thou hear, Elijah? And he said, I, you know, we've already read verse 10 about the uh, focus on himself. So now God's going to help him to get beyond himself and look at the bigger picture. In verse 10, he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains. I don't know if you're a visual person, but when I read this, I, I try to picture it. Can you picture Elijah out there? He's come out of the mouth of the cave and there's a great storm. And uh, it's, it's such a tremendous storm that it's rent the mountain. In other words, it's, it's, it's breaking apart. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire... Perhaps an electrical storm, maybe literal fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. <coughs> and it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? So same question. Now, before we leave that, why all the dramatics? If God has a message for him, why does he just come with a small, still voice to start with? Why all? Do you think it might be because Elijah needs to be impressed with the power of God? He's feeling weak. He's feeling discouraged. He's magnified his enemy, Jezebel, and the prophets. I, I, even I, I'm the only one left. I'm a poor little me. No power, no strength. You know, Elijah, let me show you something. Earthquake, fire, wind, storm. Elijah's blown away. I remember as a kid sitting on, we had a, a large porch with a cupboard. We lived out in the country in fields around, cotton fields and Soybeans sometimes. And a great storm had come up. And it hardly ever, even with the wind was blowing, would blow up under that porch. So I'd sit out there sometimes and just watch the storm. Listening as the thunder and see the lightning and the rain and the wind. And pray. And praise the God who made the world. You see his power in what he did. Elijah saw his power. Now what about when I'm discouraged? Am I focusing on God's power or my weakness? I'm focusing on my weakness, not God's power. 
Now, God's not going to bring a storm into your life or a fire or an earthquake. He's not going to come and speak to us in a small, still voice. Does that mean that we don't have any examples of God's power? How about this one? Doesn't it belong to us? What about all the miracles that Jesus did? I read them again. I put myself in the picture and I think, that's, that's my Lord. That's His power. Is He any weaker today than He was 2,000 years ago? If anything, He's more glorious now than He was then because He's been uh, arrayed with the glory that He had before He came. And then I can think about all the things that God has done in my life before. Has there ever been a problem that I have that God didn't get me through? Well, ask yourself that question. Well, you're here, so that tells me the answer to it. What about the great things that God has done in His church? What about new members that God has brought to salvation through the means of this congregation? What about great gospel meetings of the past? What about children that have grown up here, sitting in these pews that are faithfully serving God in other locations perhaps as Bible teachers and elders and youth ministers and preachers? And You know, God still does a lot, doesn't He? When I focus on that instead of on poor little me, it changes my attitude. Amen. Then you think in this chapter, God also gave him additional responsibilities. When you uh, drop down to verse uh, 16, and Jehu, uh, well, let's go to 15. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. Elijah, you're not doing anybody any good out here in a cave. You know? And when I lock myself in my house and I, I, I take myself out of circulation, I'm not doing anybody any good. I'm not, do, I'm not setting a good example for my family. My neighbors who see my car in my garage or in my driveway Sunday morning when they know that I normally would be at church, I'm not doing anybody any good. When, I, when I'm not living as I should, what example am I setting for the people at work? So, we fit in this too. And you continue, Go return on thy way to the deliverance of Damascus, and when thou... And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Elijah thought he was all washed up. Lord, what good's my life? Just take me. God said, I want you to anoint a king. No one in this room is ever going to anoint or appoint a king. Elijah had two of them to anoint. The next verse is going to tell us about the second one. God says, I got something pretty important for you to do, Elijah. So, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Verse 16, Elisha, the son of Saphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou appoint, anoint to be prophet in thy room. So let's talk about uh, the first part of the verse, then we'll talk about the second part of the verse. first part of the verse is, if you're discouraged right now, is there anything in the kingdom of God that God has left for you to accomplish? What was it that uh, Esther 4.14 asked? Who knows whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. You think about Moses. Really could look at a lot of servants, but look at Moses. Moses was 80 years old. I'm not going to ask anybody their age in here, but most of the time when we hit 80, we pretty much think, I've done everything I'm going to do. 
Elijah, uh, Moses was just getting started. The last 40 years of his life is what we know him for mostly. When he led the children of Israel, he, he left the wilderness at 80 years of age. He went and confronted Pharaoh and led the people out and did all the things that we know from 80 to 120. Well, you may not live to be 120, probably won't. But what about from 80 to 85? Or not? 10 years is a long time. You look at any 10 year period of your life, how much did you get done for God in that, in that 10 years? Or that 5 years? Or that year? You can do a lot in a year. You can do a lot in a day for God. You surely can do a lot in five years. So, ask yourself, what is there? I'm here. I'm serving God. What is it that God needs me to do in my family, in my congregation, in my community right now? Is there nothing? <laughs> there could never be nothing. So look around. Is there somebody that needs to be visited? Is there someone who needs to be taught the gospel? Are there children's classes that I could teach? Is there someone that I could invite and go by and pick up and take out to lunch after they came to a service to hear the gospel preached? Even if I didn't feel like I'm capable of teaching the gospel to them. Probably almost all of us are. But I can bring them. Who can't do that? And they can ask me questions. And I could say, I know the answer to that. Or I could say, hmm, that's a good question. I'm on a, I'll find out and I'll get, I'll get back to you. There's no shame in that. All right. Three minutes. Let me, I said I would do the last part of the verse, so let's do that. The last one is, <clears throat> the last um, solution God gave for Elijah's discouragement was he got him some help. He says... Now, we've been talking about Elijah. Let's talk about Elisha for a minute. In the last part of verse 16, he says, uh, Thou shalt appoint to be prophet in thy room. Elisha sometimes is called the one who poured, uh, poured water on the hands of Elijah. What does that mean? Well, they didn't have running water back then, so if you want to wash his hands, you need somebody to help him. So he would wash his hands and he would pour water. What's he doing? He's helping him. He's right there with him. So what's the lesson? Here's an apprenticeship. Here is Elisha, the younger man, who is shadowing the older man, watching, listening, asking, learning, so that when Elijah is no longer on the scene, Elisha is going to take up his mantle. He's going to become prophet in his room. Oh, What do you do in this church? Maybe somebody here keeps your record, your financial records, you know, how much is given and we pay this bill. I don't know who that is. It doesn't matter to me. Somebody's got to do it. Maybe it's an older person. What if you die of a heart attack before this gospel meeting ends? Would anybody know how to do what you do? Would the church be okay? Maybe you're the one that keeps the building Light bulbs changed, grass mowed, toilet paper in the bathrooms, and vacuumed. And who's going to do that? Do, who, do, do they know where everything is? Do they know what the checklist is that needs to be done before Sunday? I started to say who makes the Lord's Supper, but we buy it now. 
but we may go back to that. So who has that ready? We didn't, you know, I never really thought about it before. Uh, somebody came up here early and put the juice in the cups and somebody baked the bread or maybe they bought it, but they made it sure it was going to be there. Who's going to do that? Who's going to serve the church as leaders? Who's going to preach in the pulpit? Who's going to teach the kids Bible classes? I'll close with this. <clears throat> There's a lady who had been teaching for 34 years a Bible class, kids Bible class. She got discouraged. She, uh, she said, I'm going to go to the elders and get somebody else to teach my class. I, I just don't have patience for these kids anymore. And uh, she thought about it all week. She was going to talk to them Sunday. And then she said, uh, you know, we've got a new member, college girl, just out of college. And uh, she, she doesn't know anybody hardly, and she just got here, and she hasn't, she's not doing anything in church yet, as far as I know. I'm going to ask her if she would help me. So she goes, Wednesday night, she says, I've been teaching the four and five-year-olds, and uh, I need an assistant. Would you, would you help me Sunday? Oh, yeah. Yes, I'd love to. I never taught, but I would, I'll be there. What time? Where? What's your classroom? So she's there. And uh, so the lady teaches class. And the first couple of weeks, she doesn't do anything except take the little kids to the bathroom when they need to go during class. So the others. But then uh, after a few weeks, the teacher says, uh, next week, um, would you take, we're going to study about Elijah. Would you take the, la- the last five minutes of the class and go over a review of Elijah for the students? Oh, I don't know if I could do that. I, I never taught a class. This is five minutes. All right, I'll try. So it comes, and she does a good job with it. And then she starts doing that every week. Then the teacher says, we're going on vacation next week. And uh, would you mind teaching? Oh, it's a whole class? <laughs> you can do it. Here's the lesson. Here's the materials. Here's the visual aids I used last time I taught this lesson. Okay, I'll try. She comes back from vacation. And, uh, well, how did that really well. Yeah, I enjoyed it so much. The kids, they seemed like they learned. We had a big class. I mean, I, it was great. End of the quarter comes. She goes to the elders and instead of saying I'm quitting, she says to the elders, Anne has been helping me in my class and I think she's ready to teach if she wants to. Would it be okay with you if she taught next quarter. What are the elders going to say? Sure. Oh, great. We need a new teacher. Now, I use Bible teacher as an illustration. But whatever it is that we do in the church, we can do what I just described with the Bible teacher. If it's finances, introduce them to the financial system that you use and where the bank account numbers are, what the passwords are. Obviously, you pick the right person for that. You go through the elders, if you have elders, or the, the, the authorities that are set up in the congregation, because everything needs to be done decently in order, but train them. If you're the maintenance person, let's say, well, we'll have a work day up here next Saturday. Would you mind coming up and helping? We're going to clean up the baptistry, and I've got some things I want to show you. Yeah. And then before long, well, would you take next month for me? Well, I don't mind. And then, when I'm off the scene, you got somebody who knows how to do it. You have an Elisha or an Elijah. So here's Elijah sitting under the juniper tree. What contributed to it? Several things that we can see in our own lives sometimes. 
How did God get him out of it? These are the solutions from Scripture on how God fixes someone who's discouraged. So the next time you feel discouraged, read 1 Kings chapter 19. Thank you for your attention this morning.